Today I titled the lesson as we continue our study on on uh, the broad topic of suffering or pain and sorrow, but uh, today's lesson, and I think probably next week as well, is called Good Grief, uh, because the Bible talks about grief a good bit, and it tells us some things that we need to know. Last week we looked at the theological foundation of certain things that we know, that we can stand on and trust in, and uh, this week I want to take that a little further and then build upon it uh, for next week as well as we look at some things we can do uh, that, that will be helpful to those who are grieving. I want to begin with a, a few quotes here, a couple from C.S. Lewis and uh, one from Helen Keller. C.S. Lewis, uh, in his book, the, the Problem of Pain, says, Mental pain is less dramatic than physical pain, but it is more common and also more hard to bear. The frequent attempt to conceal mental pain increases the burden. It is easier to say, my tooth is aching, than to say, my heart is broken. Helen Keller said, we bereaved are not alone. We belong to the largest company in all the world the company of those who have known suffering. And then a longer quote from C.S. Lewis in his book, A Grief Observed, a book he wrote uh, after the death of his beloved wife, just as he wrote Reflections, and as he went through that grief process for himself. He said, No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. And grief still feels like fear, perhaps more strictly like suspense or like waiting, just hanging about waiting for something to happen. It gives life a permanently provisional feeling. It doesn't seem worth starting anything. I can't settle down. I yawn. I fidget. I smoke too much. Up till this, I always had too little time. Now there is nothing but time, almost pure time, empty, successiveness. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or concussed. There is a sort of invisible blanket between me, the wor- between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says, or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It is so uninteresting, yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they would talk to one another and not to me. We most often associate grief with death. Um, Death is public in that it is usually announced and Formally, formally acknowledged, there may be an obituary in a newspaper or certainly a, a funeral, uh, the kinds of things that are certainly unavoidable for others to know what's going on with us if it's a loved one that we've lost. But we need to remember that grief has a variety of expressions and also comes as the result of any life-changing event, any event that turns your life upside down, an accident, even a job loss, a move, Bankruptcy, divorce, or any kind of trouble that turns our life upside down. And while I'm not saying that uh, those are identical, sometimes these other grief-producing events have their own difficulties, 
due to the fact that they are either not public or in many cases we don't want them to be public. Perhaps we're embarrassed about them or we think we shouldn't be grieved or upset about such things and so others may not perceive that there's anything going on or should be going on and and so it's not noticed in the same way. In such cases, the emotional struggles go that we go through might be misidentified or even misunderstood by us and by others. And as a result, grief can be, and often is, a very lonely place. Now, I'm not saying these griefs are identical, and we're going to say more about this, a good bit more about this next week, that grief is unique to every individual and every circumstance. Uh, but that's, we're going to see that that's true of many things in our lives. And so while I do intend to address grief primarily as it applies to the death of a loved one, uh, the same principle is going to, same principles will apply to the other types of grief as well. Grief and joy, in our thinking at least, stand at opposite ends of the spectrum in our experience. According to the Bible, however, it is possible for there to be simultaneously a mixture of joy and grief. They can coexist. Real grief and real joy in the midst of that real grief. One way to think about grief and joy, though, is the analogy of geography. Grief is a low place and joy is a high place. To be in a state of grief is to be located in a place that affects our perspective on everything. Valleys and mountaintops limit or expand our vision, depending on where we are. Uh, Our vision of the past, our vision of the present, and our vision of the future is affected based on whether we're in grief, in a valley, or in in some kind of exalted joy on on a mountaintop experience. We have very different points of view depending on our emotional state. When we feel physical pain, all of our attention is located at the point where it hurts. For example, the fact that other parts of our body may feel good doesn't diminish the intensity of the pain that we might feel from, say, an injured foot. The pain, if significant, it gets all of our attention. And while we're in pain, it's a priority. It blocks out our other thoughts. And if the pain's intense enough, and I've had that kind of pain, where you you think, I'll do anything to get relief from this pain. Where do I go? What do I do? How quickly can I do it? It's all about the here and now. And while we would like to leave it behind, pain has a way of holding us in place. If that pain doesn't let up, then it keeps our attention. And so emotional pain or grief operates frequently in a similar way to physical pain. The valley of the shadow of death is a fearful place, a lonely place. And when we're in a state of grief, it's hard for us to see where we've been or where we're going. It's hard to imagine being anywhere else. I can remember telling my wife at one point, at a particularly low point, I cannot imagine, I cannot even imagine ever being happy again. 
Our whole perspective is changed. Our priorities are rearranged. From the high place, we can see very far. We can remember. We can anticipate. At a happy occasion, an anniversary, a birthday, a Christmas celebration, as we gather, we have, we have a lot of remembrances and delights and joys and perhaps talk about what we're going to be doing next. We can remember and anticipate. We can see the valleys behind us, but they're diminished. They're diminished in size as they're placed in the grand context of our lives. And so we can remember being in pain. We remember that it hurt, but the pain itself does subside. We can see that we have been to many valleys, but we can also see the multitude of places in between, along with the various summits that we have conquered along the way. In fact, our time spent in the valleys of pain and grief actually heighten our joys and provide a contrast that enables us to appreciate our location somewhat like the seasons of the year. A nice hard freeze like we're about to have makes us appreciate spring all the more when it comes. Our gratitude for being in a state of health is greater when we have experienced a state and a place of sickness. Eternal life is even grander when we have been rescued from eternal death. And sometimes we find ourselves, though, stuck in grief, spinning our wheels. It's hard to find our way out. We can't pass through this life without going there, perhaps many times. But how can we see beyond that dark place? How can we grieve And yet, as the scriptures say, not grieve like those who have no hope. I can't even imagine, you know, without the gospel, without the good news, without the promises, without the expectations, I don't know how to cope. The Bible is a sort of road map that we can turn to when we're lost or when we're stuck. We talked about some of this last week as we looked at the theology of grief. What are the things we do know? What things can we stand on? We don't know everything. We can't explain everything. We're not going to know and explain everything, but we can know some things. And so we turn to the Word of God. It helps us see and remember not only where we are, but more importantly, perhaps, where we're going. It gives us honest perspective. It gives us a reality check. Because remember, our perspective is skewed, and we're not seeing clearly So we need something outside of ourselves that will help us get that focus. It shows us the bigger picture. It gives us then both direction and hope. The death of someone we love very deeply is one of the most overwhelming griefs in this life. The death of a loved one is heartbreaking. It's even devastating. Yet it is one that comes to most of us at some point. There are some, perhaps a minority of people, whose situation is even more tragic because they have no relatives, they have no loved ones, they have no friends whose death they might mourn. 
And so we are, we feel helpless in death. There never seems to be a good time to die. Though there do seem to be better ways to die than others. One Puritan said, O Lord, rattle this house before you tear it down. I'm more inclined to uh, what Julius Caesar said when asked how he wanted to die. And he said, unexpectedly. For most of us individually, or uh, it is, or to a, or to a shattered family unit, bereavement is a crushing blow which makes many other, if not all other, trials seem minor by comparison. And again, we see a lot of perspective issues when we address this subject. I jokingly, I remember taking Aaron to a college uh, in Idaho from Texarkana. It was a 34-hour drive. Now, this would be nothing to people like the Brainerds who are with us who do that on a, you know, on a weekly basis kind of thing. But a 34-hour drive there uh, was, uh, it put all other trips in perspective. A trip to Dallas, a three-hour trip to Dallas seemed like nothing after that. And so recently as, you know, I'm driving, going back and forth between Dallas a few times and the trip seems long, I'm thinking, I need one of those 34-hour uh, drives to bring this one back into perspective. But back to our, our subject here, the loss or the death of a loved one might be sudden and the grief may be compounded perhaps with the shock and perhaps even some bitterness or not a parting where there was no opportunity to say goodbye. It might be the long anticipated death after a prolonged illness which stretches out the pain as the inevitable moment slowly approaches. The death of a child is especially devastating. Every situation is different. I know I remember watching um, when my grandmother, uh, I had my grandfather died and my uncle died very close to one another uh, within a year or two of each other. And I was a young teenager and and it was really kind of my first time to be around that kind of situation. And I remember her being upset about my grandfather's death. He had had a stroke and had been uh, pretty much an invalid for a number of years and had gone to a nursing home. And, uh, and she was grieved and sad, but nothing compared to when my uncle uh, was killed in an accident. It was, a, it was night and day. And so uh, though, there's, there are things, sometimes death comes when someone's been ill or they're elderly or whatever, and, and we're sad, but it seems to be something we expect and anticipate, sometimes even see as uh, a point in which we have some relief, knowing that they're no longer suffering or in pain. Uh, But, again, every situation is different. But however it comes, death is always a cruel blow because it tears apart lives and leaves behind the ragged edges of severed relationships. Consider a man and a wife who've had a long, loving marriage. Indeed, they were one flesh. And when one dies, the surviving spouse usually feels empty, lonely, and torn in two. In fact, uh, last week, I was visiting with Robin's mother, Mrs. Brandenburg, here after church. And she had been listening to the series of lessons on the new heavens and the new earth and, and said that they had really helped her. She lost her husband of 60 years, uh, Joe I hear this past year. And she said to me, every night I dream that Joe comes to me. Why is that? 
And I said, well, when two people have been one flesh for 60 years, a part of you died. Something important is missing, and you long for that void to be filled. And, of course, similar feelings are evoked when any loved one dies. When you love someone, you become vulnerable to sorrow uh, that comes from losing that which you love. Um, but love is all important, and God doesn't want us to hold back on loving, uh, loving people in order to avoid future grief. Love, which delighted to embrace, finds itself clutching, as it were, in agony at a void whose emptiness is dark, uh, darkened by the awful realization that it will not soon be filled. This is why the Bible tells us that death is the enemy. It is the last enemy. It is the defeated enemy that Christ has defeated. The Bible also makes it clear that our grief will be temporary while our joy will be forever. The Bible gives us hope of a fabulous future when we will be reunited with our loved ones. Again, I don't know what you do if you say, well, this is it. It's over. The lights are out. It's all over. Uh, They cease to exist. Pretty soon I will follow them and I will cease to exist. And all of this will have meant nothing. Our recent lessons on heaven and on the new heavens and new earth, I think, I hope, laid a firm foundation uh, upon which to rest that hope. Giovanna didn't know she was going to be mentioned today, but she recently posted a quote from C.S. Lewis uh, from A Grief Observed. It says, you never know how much you really believe anything until its truth or falsehood becomes a matter of life or death for you. This is why the question of whether the resurrection is a fact or not is critical. Because upon this rests all of our hopes, not only for this life, but for the life to come. And because he who rose, uh, because he rose, there is a glory which can transform even the ugliness of death. And so like Paul, we can mock death as he did in 1 Corinthians 15. 55 through 57, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The praise of the church through 20 20 centuries, uh, the joyful testimony of a long line of martyrs, the quiet assurance of an innumerable company of unrecorded lives, all of these are rooted in one basic fact. We find that in 1 Corinthians 15:20, that Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's why the Christian hopes, the Christian's hope for the future is so rich. We don't believe in some idea of a shadowy survival beyond the grave. We're not limited to the old Greek notion of the immortality of the soul. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Death means the tearing apart of a divinely created unity between soul and body. The body left in its lifeless state returns to the dust, but... At least temporarily, the soul lives on. And so the Apostle tells us that to be 
absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, that means that death for the Christian is the moment of translation into the presence of Christ. To depart, Paul writes, is to be with Christ, which is far better. And I want to remind you again, building on last week's lesson, that theology is important, doctrine is important, what we believe, ideas have consequences. Obviously, as Paul said, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then we above all people are to be most pitied. Christians are fools. How dare you believe such a notion? Pie in the sky, of course, as some say. But, of course, the opposite is true. So we hear the triumphant shout from heaven in Revelation 14, 13. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow after them. But this isn't the final vision. For although that is glorious to contemplate being in the presence of the Lord, there is an even richer hope. While Paul looks forward to joy with living with Christ, it is not to what he calls an unclothed condition, but to one which he is clothed, which he is clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven, which is a fancy way of saying the resurrection. Our physical bodies are reunited. And so... The biblical view of the body is far removed from the pagan notion that it's our that the body is the prison house of the soul from which our only hope is to be set free. When God created man, he made him a unity of soul and body. And it's through our bodily life that we express the life of the soul, and it is through our bodies that we come into relationships with one another. That's what death is. Death Death, the body dies, and I have no more means of communion and communication because that's how we communicate. That's how we commune is through our bodies. And thus we have this lovely picture of the body of Christ and the communion of the saints. The body is meant to be the expression of life. Death puts an end to that. And so the biblical hope of the resurrection is an Assertion of a continuance of a full personal existence in which the glorified soul has a perfected, resurrected body for the expression of a new heavenly and new earthly life. Moreover, our enjoyment of life here is not only affected by the fact that we're sinful and we're dying and, and, and we are corrupt, but also the world itself, the nature nature and our environment, and so the Bible also speaks of a renewal of our environment, not only new bodies, but a new earth. And so not only does the glorified believer enjoy the freedom from sinful weakness because of the perfection of his resurrected body, he also will revel in a perfect environment with no hindrance to his enjoyment. 2 Peter 3.13, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21.4, it is an environment free from sin and so free from all the ugly, grief-laden consequences of sin. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more 
crying, there shall be no more pain for the former things have passed away. And so again, our joy exceeds whatever our griefs are. What is the primary way the Bible portrays death of, of a believer? And he said to them, John 11, 11, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. John goes on to relate how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead to life. In the Bible, death is often portrayed as sleep. The beautiful metaphor of sleep emphasizes the fact that the first death is temporary and that everyone who dies will be awakened. This understanding of death is much more comforting than all the unbiblical and erroneous ideas about death. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 26, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And so God created us with a kind of instinct for self-preservation, a will to live. And the Bible portrays death, of course, as our enemy. But after the return of Christ, death will be swallowed up in victory. A person who is close to God can, in one sense, look forward to death, as Paul did. He said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I live on the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I, what, what shall I choose, I cannot tell, for I am hard-pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. It wasn't death itself, but rather what his death led to that he was anticipating. He wasn't looking forward to death. He was looking forward to what happened after that. So what does the Bible say about grieving over the death of a loved one? Matthew 5, 4 says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow or grieve as those who have no hope. It is normal and healthy to grieve when we lose the companionship of someone we love. We've been separated, albeit temporarily. I know sometimes as a pastor I'm asked about a person or a family, how are they doing? And of course, that answer could be varied with the individual. What do you mean by that? Um, uh, everybody shows that, expresses that in different ways. So if someone is, uh, as we would put it, falling apart, sobbing on their bed, is that good? I think so. At some point, could it be unhealthy and difficult and need some encouragement and help to, to begin to not be totally overcome? Yes. It is a, it is a, it's a roller coaster is what it is. And there is no right or wrong way in and of itself. Uh, but the Bible does give us some direction and points us in some ways that we should understand first because, again, most of us, if we don't die first, are going to experience this if we haven't already. So we need to be equipped. We need to be prepared for our own grief, know what it looks like, know what's appropriate in terms of what we should expect and 
and those kinds of things, as well as know what the promises of God are, what, how we should think about the situation, and that will help us. Uh, it's like being prepared for anything else. But we also need to know this so that we can minister to others. That will be our focus of next week's lesson. Healthy grieving depends on facing the reality of death. And it's going to look different for every person. And again, discussing this topic ahead of time is helpful. Denying death makes it harder for people to grieve and to support one another and heal. The Apostle Paul, right after explaining about the promises of the resurrection, said, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. And so, we're going to see and ask that question, can words really make that much difference? The Bible says they can. Do they make all the difference? No. They make some difference. They make some important difference. But not all the difference. And so we will frequently hear something like, well, nothing is going to bring my loved one back. Well, actually, that's not true. Jesus is. Not today, not this week, not now, not when you want it to happen. But it's not absolutely true that nothing can bring them back. There is one thing that can bring them back. But if you mean by those kinds of reactions or statements, uh, there's nothing you can say that is going to make me feel any better, then I will argue with that. It may not make you feel better, better on the spot at that moment, but the Bible says there are words that make a difference. And we will develop that more next week. I want to close today. I'm cutting a little bit short because uh, it's kind of at an ending place of what I wanted to say today before we get into those issues a little more deeply for next week. But I want to end with four quotes here uh, about death and grief. Two, uh, the first two are from Charles Spurgeon. He says, A good character is the best tombstone. Those who loved you and were helped by you will remember you when forget-me-nots have withered. Carve your name on hearts, not on marble. He goes on and says, Your sorrow itself shall be turned into joy, not the sorrow to be taken, to be taken away and joy to be put in its place, but the very sorrow which now grieves you shall be turned into joy. God not only takes away the bitterness and gives sweetness in its place, but he turns the bitterness into sweetness itself. One of the things we've learned about God is he's able to overcome evil with good. He's able to turn that which is ostensibly evil, and certainly death is one of those things, into a good thing. How do you do that? Well, that's impossible for men, but all things are possible with God. No matter what we've intended, no matter what the effects are, no matter that's the amazing grace of the gospel, is it takes the worst possible thing, where, where all hope is gone, all is lost, there seems no hope whatsoever, and then light breaks. Jesus rose from the dead, the firstborn from the dead. Wait a minute, that changes everything. That changes everything. Tell me more. What do I need to know? What do I need to do in order to acquire that? Robert Capon said, he, he comes to us, speaking of God, he comes to us in the brokenness of our health, in the shipwreck of our family lives, 
in the loss of all possible peace of mind, even in the very thick of our sins. He he saves us in our disasters, not from them. He emphatically does not promise to meet only the odd winner of the self-improvement lottery. He meets us all in our endless and inescapable losing. And then Joni uh, Erickson Tata, who you may be familiar with, was paralyzed in an accident. I think I mentioned she was a member of the church where Kristen is out in California, written a number of books, and she was quad, she's, she is quadriplegic. And I love, this is very beautiful, her perspective on this. In a way, I wish I could take to heaven my old, tattered, Everest and Jennings wheelchair. I would point to the empty seat and say, Lord, for decades I was paralyzed in this chair. But it showed me how paralyzed you must have felt to be nailed to your cross. My limitations taught me something about the limitations you endured when you laid aside your robes, robes of state, and put on the indignity of human flesh. At that point, with my strong and glorified body, I might sit in it, rub the armrest with my hands, look up at Jesus and add, the weaker I felt in this chair, the harder I leaned on you, and the harder I leaned the more I discovered how strong you are. Thank you, Jesus, for learning obedience in your suffering. You gave me grace to learn obedience in mine. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for the promises, for the hope, for the knowledge that we couldn't possibly have by ourselves. If we were to go out in search of these truths, we would never, ever find them. For we are in darkness, and we are so finite as creatures that we could never see these things if you hadn't been pleased to reveal them. We would have been left without hope in this world. Thank you for your word. Thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ who has loved us and shown his grace to us in our sins, who comforts us in our sorrows and gives us a sure and certain hope of the resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.